0: Welcome everyone. My name is Nicholas. I'll be hosting today's Awaken call. And thank you for joining us from wherever you happen to be in the world. The intention behind these calls is to plant seeds of awareness and transformation within ourselves and our communities. This happens through conversations with individuals whose journeys and work inspire us. Awaken Calls is an initiative of Service Space, a distributed global, all-volunteer community committed to the principle that by changing ourselves, we change the world. Behind each of these calls is an entire Service Space team whose invisible work allows us to hold this space. In a few minutes, our moderator, Cynthia, will begin by engaging in initial, in initial dialogue with our speaker, Mina Lee. And by the top of the hour, we'll open into a circle of sharing. In that circle, we'll draw upon the reflections and questions from our listeners. At any time during the call, you can submit your comments or your questions via the webcast form on our live stream page, or you can email us at ask at service space.org. That's A-S-K at service space.org. Whether you're tuning in live, or listening to the recording later, we're grateful for your presence in co-creating and deepening the collective energy of this conversation. As a friendly reminder, if there's a techn- technological glitch or other issue for any of the speakers, please hang in there while our team works quickly to bring the speakers back on. So let's start with a minute of silence to anchor ourselves in this space. Thank you and welcome again. Our moderator for the conversation today with Mina Lee is Cynthia Lee, different Lee. Let me tell you a few words about Cynthia. Cynthia is a doctor and author whose personal journey through a disabling autoimmune disease took her from public health in underserved communities to integrative and functional medicine and intuitive healing. She has studied with functional medicine experts, environmental health scientists, alternative healers, and qigong masters. She serves as faculty for the Rachel Remen Healers Art Program at UC San Francisco School of Medicine, and she is the author of a memoir, Brave New Medicine, which I highly recommend, and a free ebook for COVID-19, How to Strengthen Your Inner Shield, which I also highly recommend. Cynthia, over to you.
1: Thank you so much, Nicholas. So it is my um, pleasure and honor to introduce um, my friend, um, my teacher um, and my, I don't know, fellow sojourner, Amina Lee. Mina is a facilitator. She's an executive coach and strategist for culture change. She is guided by the questions of how to bridge social and intergenerational divides and how to allow ourselves to be stretched by love. After graduating from New York University in economics and finance, with a focus on social entrepreneurship, she served as a management consultant at the Boston Consulting Firm, then as innovation and economic development consultant at the World Bank, and also as the founder of an events company in New York City, among other roles. In 2018, she founded the East West Bridge, an advisory firm that helps conscious companies and leaders grow. She lives between Washington State the San Francisco Bay Area and Shanghai. It's wonderful to have you with us today, Mina. Thank you. So I would love to jump into the theme of today's call um, with uh, an immersive experience. Um, so the theme is integrating spirituality and business, um, two words, concepts that I don't often think of together. Um, but it's one of the, the world, the the ways in which you bridge two worlds um, so beautifully. And um, you graciously agreed beforehand to start us out with a short sound bath with your flute.
2: Sure. Thank you, Cynthia, for that intro. Hmm. A little intro this is a native american um flute made by high spirits the double flute made by aromatic cedar i want to give gratitude to my teacher christine stevens who taught me music medicine
1: wow thank you for that that was beautiful um, so sound sound is one of the methods in which you transform the energy of the room uh, whether you're in a retreat or whether you're in a corporate boardroom. Um, I'm wondering, you know, these dimensions that you work with, um, beauty and music and business and consciousness and strategy, uh, especially as they relate to the East and the West and America and um, China. Um, again, they're not things that we usually experience together. Um, so in addition to sound healing, sound medicine, as you call it, um, what are some other methods that you use to bring spirituality into business? And also, what do you mean by taking an east-west approach to transformation?
2: Yeah. Um, I think it would be sweet to talk about these tools at a deeper level. So when I left the corporate path, music, and Christine was the first teacher I met, and what's underneath music is actually the art of improvisation. And the spiritual learning underneath that is actually to trust in one spontaneous expression as good. And it was working with my self-censoring mind to embrace the playfulness of the moment. And then came my second teacher, Joe Hudson, and a lot of that work the tool is around emotional fluidity and somatic and neuroscience, psychology, interrelational work, conflicts, having deep, having difficult conversations. And I would say this is what I consider a lot of the tools in the West, you know, psychology, how we work trauma, a lot of this study. And my third lineage that I connect to is the Tan lineage in China. And Tan is the integration of Buddhism and Taoism. And it's it's really what happened when Buddhism came to China with all the existing philosophies in China, Taoism, Confucianism, and then it was brought to Japan and became known as Zen. But Tan is the original form, and it's much more wild. So we do poetry, plays, theater. It's a lot of um, falling in love with life. And I realized that in this in the journey one needs balance between the the relational work and the healing that we do of trauma and relations and relationships, which I really, I feel is a, is a big Western tool and silence, quiet beauty, um, which I find is deep in the traditions of the East and also in indigenous practices. So even from my first teacher in indigenous practices around the world of a deep connection to nature and earth and quiet. Mm yeah and Absolutely. so taking these tools together means that we work on a very holistic approach with clients so we work on the mental emotional body and the nervous system level and of course the spiritual and but the spiritual is really all of it you know in integrated form and yeah i'll stop there
1: well, well there's so many different um, big think, topics that you touched on and I think what I appreciate so much about what you bring forth is continuing to just go into that, that deep level of essence. I mean, this is how this is ultimately also where medicine is moving as well, right? Because when we keep fragmenting and specializing, we realize we're not treating the whole person, we're not treating the whole ecosystem that they live in. Um, yes, there's so many so that. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, no, just what you said there is so apt for another difference that i noticed in the west and the east too in the west i noticed people can take specific approaches just like the medicine but the path too i noticed it's like embodied body work or um physical health or emotional health but in Ch- but in china what i noticed is a lot of attention paid to chi as well in life force and it's very holistic and includes um i remember when i went there they, the first teachings were around how to be human and it was nine basic teachings around how to breathe, how to stand, how to sit, how to eat, mm-hmm. how to drink. It was like the basic functionings of being human so you could cultivate that life force within and see that creativity and enjoyment of life is your most natural form. Actually, when you're in full health and you don't need to make yourself be creative in from that place of you know, lack of self-trust or self-manipulation. Mm-hmm
1: yeah beautiful i would love to um go a little bit deeper into you, you mentioned trauma and it's just a it's a really big uh big big topic global topic um these days um just in your experience how have you seen trauma relate to business as usual um and the, the yeah. other piece that came up for me in thinking about trauma also in business and, and sort of in the economic model is this notion of scarcity. Yeah, um, yeah just what what have you witnessed? What is emerging um, and what's alive for you right now in that work?
2: Yeah, thank you for asking that. I, I feel the biggest trauma in, I wouldn't say the biggest, but one of the biggest traumas I feel in business is that we've, flipped our relationship with work so there's a there's a way in which the capitalist system creates a mindset where it's we live to work it's like everybody gets up and we start working and we and we think that we use life to serve work rather than having work i loved um one member in our in the in the zen community she said when work becomes the love of life itself a person illuminates themselves and those around them when work becomes the love of life itself. And there's a way in which when we actually orient ourselves to loving life and to, and to being in full health and opening our hearts, we are naturally creative and productive. And I say the deepest trauma with work is that, it, the analogy is almost like if a bear didn't know it was a bear and then you said, I'm gonna pay you to start acting like a bear. And now the bear thinks that it's only being a bear because it's getting paid and mm-hmm. it doesn't realize that actually if it wasn't paid it's already naturally a bear. And I notice we have that same relationship with work with ourselves sometimes where it's um, where we where we externalize traits or aspects or values of ourselves onto you know and of course it's tied to money money work the external realm. And when you talk about scarcity that points at the the deepest trauma which is there's a there's a way in which the performance mindset we're taught when we're young, like even the rewards and punishment incentives creates a, a teaching of conditional love, which is the first scarcity that we ever learn, which is, the, and that scarcity is a thing that's replicated Then at work too. You know, all of the fights is actually comes down to really our war with love and, you know, that I don't want to lose love or self-worth, self-love. You know if you criticize me if you take away my raise if you don't promote me if you don't um, give me the position that i wanted if i don't achieve that milestone that i wanted it to achieve
1: well in your work with with individuals with companies um and even at the intersection of multiple sectors how, how are you how do you begin to cut through all of that what is it?
2: What does it look like? Yeah, the first thing is vulnerability and the path to vulnerability for, for many people. It's, each person is different, but I would say one of the most powerful ones is to see how one talks to oneself and to illuminate oneself to the way that they treat themselves You know, is a way that they would never treat anybody else in the sense in the, in the in that internal dialogue and one of the tools we use is you know you can even do it now if you think about the most critical thing you say to yourself and then you think of the person that you love most in the world you know your daughter coming up to you and saying that to you what would you say to her and it's and it's Using the love that we have for other people as a way to open self-compassion to ourselves, because it's because oftentimes people mentally know what they're doing, but it's like until they start feeling and and the and the emotions move to you know feeling the grief of how they've treated themselves or feeling that self-compassion. Oftentimes patterns and habits don't change, and then you need the nervous system also to be in a certain state for for new behavior change to actually integrate into the person. So we'll often have homework that includes holistic um, rituals that includes massages or walks or things so your nervous system is calm enough to actually do the do the to absorb the integration and the transformation work.
1: Mm. I think what you said also about massage and also I mean really what what happens with music too at the vibrational level is this is this. Um, reconnection to the body, which is which is our full self, right? So oftentimes there's this disconnect between mind and body. I think that's so powerful. Um, and I think we'll, we'll go into it later on. Um, we're gonna show a little uh, clip from your beautiful film. And um, we'll get a little bit more of an intimate peek into um, how people are transformed um, through yeah. this kind of.
2: I would say one more thing that's, so I so vulnerability is, is big and, and facing oneself, but I say one more thing that happens a lot in the transformation path is laughter. Like when, like in these yeah. sessions and in these one-on-one sessions, when you see that you put yourself in these impossible binds and when one sees the polarities they're in, it's just like, oh, the whole thing falls apart and they're like, oh, this hasn't been working or, oh, I've been creating the very situation I've been afraid of. So for example, people who, are afraid of being wrong if you actually ask them to own their rightness there's also a resistance to that it's like i can't be i can't fully own that i'm right and i can't fully own that i'm wrong because then i'd be arrogant or i'd be bad and then even in any polarity you know it's like bad to be selfish but it's also bad to not take care of yourself and so the suffering starts when people are in this polarity and when they see how they create these polarities for themselves you know when it's possible to be and possible to not be that a lot of laughter leading to transformation, leading to the collapse of the old systems.
3: Mm.
1: Yeah. And would you say that that these polarities are? I mean, this is a human. This is a very common human experience. Are you seeing differences in that in what, your work with um, with China versus? Uh, I want to say America, but really the West, right? You do a lot of work in Europe as well. <clears throat> What are the, the different narratives there?
2: So one interesting narrative across Europe and China, and I would say even a lot of the US, is just a lack of like, people don't appreciate each other in the business world too. It's so funny, it's like the most simple tool, um, but there's a, there's a difficulty in giving appreciation, actually receiving appreciation. As a as a trend that I see amongst all three, you know, in Europe and especially in Germany where I work with a lot of clients, a lot of it is also that right wrong. In China, also very strong, you know, right wrong, the way that the education system is built, and also in the U.S. too. Um, and so those are common common polarities, I would say, between all three.
3: Mm.
1: Great. Great. And what I would love to do right now is just go a little bit into your your own journey, um, because all of this, of course, is really born out of you, right, being now, if I have this correct, you were born in China and then raised really biculturally in China as well as the United States.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and yeah, and just um, learning how to bridge those not, not the, just the geographical but of course the cultural divides and also just I'm um, wondering you know what the culture was like within your own family.
2: So what was the culture like within my own family?
1: Yeah, I mean what sorts of um, what, what sorts of integration and what sorts of divides I guess um, did you experience in your formative years that really, began to shape um, how you perceive the world, how you perceived yourself?
2: Mm. So that's an interesting question. There's a few pains or traumas I feel like I was born into to work through. One is the cultural revolution that happened to my parents, you know, both sides of my family, my dad's side was jailed for being in business and my mom's side of the family for being landowners working traditional Chinese medicine. Um, they were literally shot by by shot and killed. It was it was flat out. And so there's that trauma that happened to a whole generation. And then there's also just the fact that we had one, 1.4 1. 4 billion people, you know, creates a lot of intense competition and also anonymity because there's so many people. So the, those two forces coming down into me when we moved to the US created, I feel a huge pressure to achieve. And it was like to achieve, to not be one of the many, to achieve, to make a comeback for my family everything in the cultural revolution to sort of fight our way back up and there's also a third thing which is i noticed in chinese culture sort of shame and love are very connected on top of each other i remember the first time that i saw that loving and shaming was so intertwined it was a huge aha moment for me because i didn't notice it was the water i was swimming in and i would attract people that would also use shame as a way to love or to, or to change me. And I, and I just agree with it all. So I think those are three aspects of the culture that get passed on. And yeah, so that created a huge sense of achieving, a, a huge sense of not being loved just as I was. And I feel like my parents did, but it wasn't that they were not trying to, but the context created so much pressure. And I was the first one to speak English fluently, I was the first one to go to college um, to complete it in the United States. And so I then had to do that for all my siblings. So it created a huge sense of taking responsibility, early mm-hmm. looking out for the family in the West. Um, it took, it was an early take on of a very masculine role. And so in my journey, it's also been learning how to be more feminine and cultivating the inner feminine of receiving, mm-hmm. allowing oneself to be supported. And I see that with women in a lot in the West, you know, or just actually women globally in the capitalist system. It's like we're taking on more masculine roles to succeed. And now there's also a question of how do we be more integrated with our energy?
1: Wow, thank you for sharing all that. Um, and what were there any particular moments that stick out for you? Like you mentioned this, this um intertwining of shame and love and. Perhaps that is born out of a lot of the trauma, right? It's an expression of that. Um, when did that begin to shift for you? I mean, were there particular moments, or was it? I don't know, such a gradual evolution that it's hard to pinpoint. You
2: no, know, we were in line. I was at a. I was at a retreat with Joe, and we were in line getting food. I remember, and I was talking about my partner and certain things he said and then another work relationship and he and then there was some he I think he just straight up said oh like you you correlate shame and love as the same thing and then I had and I was like oh wow that's true and I was like standing there with my lunch plate just frozen in line it was a moment and then I just got to see it everywhere and then we turned it into a game in the household so now when we do it there was a period where me and my husband, when we would do it, we would we would say the thing, notice we're saying something that's shameful, shaming the other or shaming ourselves. And we would go, shame, 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 shame. So we just out it and it's and it's humorous rather than shaming ourselves for shaming ourselves, you know, the the way we do that loop, you know. Yeah. So we get angry ourselves for getting angry at someone else. It it just becomes an impossible loop of suffering. So we just use humor to own and, and break it up.
1: That's beautiful. I love that and the playfulness um, now. And so has this I mean, I, I imagine that this has gone on to inform your your work. Um, you yeah. mentioned that no matter what sector you were working in, you know, I mean, I, I still consider you young, but in your younger years, right? Post graduation, post graduate school, um, you began to work in these different sectors, right? For profit, nonprofit, um, and you began to just see, oh, the outer is reflecting the inner, right, and the mm-hmm. inner is informing the outer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, were there were there particular? I, I don't know. Can you can you give either like a story or more particulars about what you were seeing and how that was even informed by your own inner, right, wanting to manifest as outer.
2: Yeah, it was fascinating seeing the different structures, like the for-profit, nonprofit, entrepreneur startup, China company going global, and to see that it was all the same challenge through all. And so like, for example, at BCG, I had the extreme gift of seeing how well talent was managed. And then when I, and that it was all about the people and then when I went to the World Bank, this organization that I thought was all about helping people, I saw there were so many weird things happening because people didn't give feedback directly. It was like more about protecting people. There was a lack of direct communication for a lot of stuff. And I just saw how that wasted like so much money. And if, even if people had PhD degrees and very high IQ points without, Di- without the capacity to have direct communication and feedback and focus on human development, there was a lot of miscommunication. And the same thing happened when I worked for Xiaomi, which at the time I joined when they were the most valuable private tech company in China. I was really curious about how a Chinese company would go global. I saw how the lack of connection and trust due to breakdown of language and culture would mean money and funds wouldn't flow. And so I just saw how over and over again, it was all about human connection through every single organization. And that's what that's what led to me saying, okay, I'm gonna stop and and actually go for the place where I feel has the most leverage in the paradigm for change, which is one's connection with oneself. And I just saw that when someone wasn't in connection with themselves, they especially with leaders now and the clients I work with now, it's so obvious now. And mm-hmm. it's really interesting when I work with family businesses versus non-family businesses. We have family businesses, we also do family dynamic work. Because it's impossible, like, especially if a husband and wife run a company together, if a father runs a company as in Southeast Asia, as in Asia is very common with their children in the company, you can't sort of talk about management and leadership without addressing the family dynamics, you know, um, and you just see how it all starts to correlate. You know, if if a, if a father didn't, you know, you see the family dynamics, if one person never got approval from their parent, they also have subordinates that also never get their approval. And if they feel stuck in their will and their capacity to create, you also see that in the people around them, you know, and it just cascades down into the organization. So, I
1: mean, you bring the family business is even like a much more concrete version of that, right? I mean, I think, regardless of what organization, when we kind of bring in our own family dynamics into relating to those around us. But if we're working actually with our family members, it's another layer of, of conditioned, yeah. habits, conditioned relationships. Yes. Um, how do you begin to work with family members? I mean, that, that seems like such a big uh, undertaking.
2: It's really fun. Um, so the person, the person running the organization first on top has to buy in. Mm-hmm. first so it's, they typically start working with them and then when they start transforming they're like oh i want to feel closer to my wife or my children or my siblings and then that starts to work and they're like oh i want my management team to also learn some of the, these tools and then that expands and so that's typically the path but the person on top needs to have the recognition first that it's not either the pain needs to be so great that they want to change things or they, they have the recognition that their patterns are actually creating self-sabotage yeah. beautiful
1: yeah i often say you know there's there's two primary paths to to uh, transformation one is is pain you know as you mentioned just sheer pain or fatigue and the other one is actually more of an awakening you know it's more of an enlightenment aha moment um, and often unfortunately just uh, the way we humans are uh, change is hard and so we we, mm-hmm. we wait for those moments of of uh,
2: desperation to, mm. to open up. Um, that's that's also where the East can come in, where you cultivate a vision of, of beauty for yourself, for the future. So it's like if you if you support someone in actually creating a future that they're in love with, that opens their heart, that's full of beauty, it will also move them, move them there. And I remember one of my other mentors, Alison Duncan, who's done a lot of movement work, she says a leader the leader just speaks to what's already true in people's hearts. And that's how movement leaders get everybody. And I feel that in, in with my work in China too, it's not like one person's message, is they're speaking to the truth and the beauty that I want. I want intergenerational healing. I want connection with my father. And the, the community I work with in China, they, they have right now six different decades of people all working together, very intergenerational. I remember when they spoke to that vision, I had a, I had heartbreak and I started crying. And it wasn't like their vision it was a vision that was already existing in my heart that I wanted.
1: What are the, what are the different ways that you, that you introduce beauty into these cultures that can be, I mean, really hardlined? Um, and I, I'm curious, are they generally, are they open to that?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, so it depends on where everybody is in the journey. Some people are open to music, to tea, to art, to reflection. And then the most deepest and feel powerful is I just have them put a video up of them. They, I have them turn their self-view on and see how beautiful they are. And then we do the work of what's in the way between them loving themselves and seeing their beauty. You know, they say mm-hmm. all the reasons why they're not beautiful, why they suck, why they're horrible, why they're a worthless piece of shit. Like the language that comes out, it's like all that stuff gets come out, comes out and gets excavated. And you see how every single one of those self judgments is is at the root of a lot of the dysfunction of the relationships in their life or things that they reject. And then at some point it's like that, seeing oneself as beautiful, as loved, loving oneself is actually the deeper, the deeper movement that's happening.
1: Wow, is there um, is there a story you could share of any particular individual? Um, I don't know who would really um, show us, you know, this the power of transformation that's possible.
2: Um, yeah. There's one story of a client that I've been very, very moved by. Um, so I work with a lot of founders who sell their companies or who are, already have a lot of the monetary success, the things that they thought would give them happiness, who then are at a point where they realize that it actually comes to my closest relationships and connection and love for myself. Like that's, that's often a great stage to work with them at. And with one of, my clients, he recognized that the way in which he was shamed when he was a child, um, like they would, they, would, they would make you like the, his siblings would point underneath, so he would look down and then they would slap his face. Yeah. And he recognized that he was doing that with his children. And when he saw that it was such heartbreak, and tears and he right after the session he went to the family dinner and apologized crying to his children that he never meant to do that and he wants them to feel safe and he told me that he had never really gotten a lot it was difficult for him and one of his children because that ch- child came early and it felt like it was in the way of his own journey or of his own freedom. And so it was the first time that that child came up to him afterwards, after that over dinner. He said, I was a bit overwhelmed during dinner, but I just want to tell you that I love you. It was the first time he went to him and gave him a hug in 13 years. Wow. Yeah, I read it and I just started crying, sobbing. Oh. And he has gone on to do so much self work. Like, his siblings now working with his siblings, the, the CEOs of the company he's left behind. He's like a classic example of someone who's just let the work spread through his entire life. And, and that has been incredibly powerful to see that, you know, and it's, it's all one electric network. So you see how when something changes in one place or with one brother, or with one, you know, wife, it's just ripples through. And it's been really interesting for me to be with that collective organism rather than just with the one person.
1: Wow, thank you. Um, I'd love to use that as a segue into uh, sharing with everyone a snippet of your beautiful film. Um, so as I mentioned in the, the intro to Mina, um, her most recent venture is called East West Bridge. And this is an advisory firm that helps quote conscious companies and leaders grow end quote. Um, and then in 2018, right around its inception, you organized and hosted this retreat uh, with 28 leaders from China's healing and well-being sector uh, to meet peers in the United States for the first time. And if I if I remember correctly, it was held in Northern California. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, in the valley. Yeah. Yeah, so an incredibly diverse group uh, with huge online platforms, you know, cumulative platforms, and um, I highly recommend that everyone check out this uh, film in its entirety. It's 13 minutes. And um, we'll be showing a three minute clip from this film. Um, the film is, uh, is posted on Karma Tube, which is our sister website, and um, we'll have the link uh, to, um, to that on our, on our nuggets page as well. Um, so Mina, is there anything you'd like to share by way of introduction before you play the clip?
2: Yeah, I would say the reason why I did it, you'll, it's, I mean, in the clip, you see that on a very deep level, it's with the rift creating between my father and I, but I do a lot of mapping and ecosystem work. And I just saw that there were so many people working in silos, like people in the transformation space, like the corporate trainers are in their space and the people who do psychology training and the people who do consciousness work. And I see some of that silo in the United States too. And so big intention was to bring people out of their silos and see how we could systemically look at the movement and actually transform it. And I also saw that there were so many people in the West that we're having fun with it that the people in the east could could learn from instead of there's like a feeling of like self-flagellation with 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 a few of them and then i say the last the last piece is that there's so much innovation happening in china that people in the west just don't get access to because the technology isn't seamless like a lot of it happens on wechat which we don't have unless you can't search for things they don't have like a their their Baidu is not like our Google it's it's really not optimized by the activity that's actually happening in the country it's on it's on these apps that are very hard to search unless you're in communities and so I wanted to share some of those innovations with the west so the west could actually learn you know for example in China a lot of the work is spread through gifting and they take advantage of the chinese cultural aspect of loving to gift people as a way of as a way of expressing love to Increase transformation work. You know, people gifted to their families, their siblings, their community, and there's just so many um, technical, technological innovations happening in China around training and education online. That's happening too. So that's the context.
1: So it was more to to bring the East to the West, um, or was it really by both kind of both? It was really both. Yeah.
2: It was like the, there was a lot the West could learn from the different approaches, especially technologically to spread the movement that the East were doing. And there was a lot that the East could learn from each other and getting out of the silos. And there was a lot that the East could also learn from um, the West in the, in the joy, the fun, the dreaming, the spaciousness of the dreaming in the in the West. Um, and they, they saw how we would it was like a party, really, when we were together rather than um, different silos where you work so hard. you know China has a 996 culture, 9 a.m. to 9 p.m six days a week. And so mm. they so there was cultural, there was a cultural and content sharing on both sides. like how we do and what we do were we shared both ways. Mm. Beautiful.
1: Um, do you want to pull that up for us? Yeah, sure.
2: America is that we are global superpowers. Sorry. I think that the narrative between China and America is that we are global superpowers in competition for world domination. And what we saw tonight was something very different and something very special. People connecting in their humanity are around very difficult problems that we all suffer from regardless of culture and looking to collaborate on solutions that can help each other, which was very inspiring. It's a different relationship than I ever would have thought of with China.
4: We are doing one thing. Actually, it's one thing. It's one thing. It's It's Whenever we
0: uh, initially meet somebody and we, we talk about our identities or our, our roles in the world, it's easy to feel separate from that person, but that also, whenever um, we feel um, they're that they're a parent and we're a parent, or that we've had a certain disease, they've had that same disease, or that they're struggling with this, we're struggling with that, all of a sudden, um, there's a, a closer connection that happens. And so when we can do that, all of a sudden uh, we're on the same team.
4: Silently repeat each of these phrases while looking at the person across from you. This person has in his or her life experienced physical and emotional pain and suffering, just like me. This person has felt unworthy or inadequate at times. Just like me. This person wants to be caring and kind to others, just like me. And now, allowing some wishes for well being to arise. I wish that you have the strength and resources and support to get through the difficulties of life with ease. I wish that you be loved because you are a fellow human being, just like me.
2: I believe in friendship. All the good things that have come in my personal life, but also in my business life, have come out of human beings meeting each other, and there's like a spark of magic that occurs. ...all parts of us together, and with all of us without you, with deepest respect and body-
1: It's hard to go back into the realm of words after that. Um, you know the first time i watched the film it was you know it was late at night the whole house was asleep just the only light on was my laptop and you know and i just i was like i'm gonna review this for you know for, for the awaken call and it was it was so powerful um particularly you know someone also you know of chinese ethnicity my parents had moved back to to China after you know they raised four kids in the United States, and my always feeling kind of this um, this distance from my ancestors and my heritage, and I don't know, just kind of in, in thirteen short minutes, you know that everything just kind of came together, and um, the the quote I, I wanted to actually ask you about it um, that you open the film with is. Um, the only thing separating me from you is my idea of you. I was just curious, where where does that come from?
2: So I think it's from, a, I think it's actually a Rumi quote, but I couldn't find it online, like that exact quote. I kept searching for it. And so, but I believe it's from a Rumi quote. And if you ever find it, please do let me know. But that...
1: Yeah, because, yeah. I did look yeah. for it. and it sounded. Did you find it? No, it sounded Rumi-esque, and I couldn't find it either. That's why I wanted to ask you. You know, and what, what was so powerful for me was the way in which we can read that, right? So the only yeah. thing separating me from you is my idea of you, right? What are my ideas of you? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other way to read it, of course, or there's probably much many more iterations. But the only thing separating me from you is my idea of you that there's even a you, you know, that, mm-hmm. that we're separate. and yeah. that's even another dimension to, um, yeah, to move toward, um, if we're not there. So I just, yeah. I want to And another yeah.
2: one is the only the book. Yeah. another one, another way to read it's also the, the projection of it, which is the only thing separating me from you is my idea of myself. Hmm. Because the moment that we think we are anything, we create separation. Mm. It's also rooted in intimate relationship as a vehicle for transformation in my life. And I wrote a poem about this on my website. Um, I want to know who you are. I want to know you so I can know myself. And it ends with, please take this idea that I have a view that keeps us separate. And this like impossibility of experience in trying to understand Nigel and that he's just this changing being form that I can't seem to hold on to, or myself.
1: And just by way of introduction, Nigel is your partner um, yeah. who uh, is yeah, an equally uh, and very distinctly astonishing human being um well thank you for that uh, that film and again I just encourage everyone to take some some time out and really carve out the you know the space the silence around you to to draw yourself into that that experience really immersively um so just in the time that we have left I mean yeah there's there's some there's some other areas where I could, you know, we could explore, but I'm just curious if what is coming up for you in terms of wanting to share. Um, I know the East West Bridge is your is your current right um, uh, vessel that you're really um, doing your work in. Um, yeah, and just. There's so much emerging in all these sectors that you're exploring—business, mm-hmm. psychology, mm-hmm. neuroscience, um, you know, mm-hmm. trauma work. What what is the current evolution? What is the manifestation of of your work, or even beyond your work, your being of your being?
2: Mm. I feel like one. The deeper question is always how to transmit the great love through whatever vehicle mm. is at hand. My teacher calls it the Tao, I call it the great love, whatever whatever it is. And I think before my vehicles were more narrow and right now what's most life for me is that it's everywhere, it's everything. And it just depends on what the person's affinity is. And mm. so to find that affinity and to work with them and allowed their love for that thing to take them deeper into the path. And I have a desire to bring a group to China the next time you know the, the borders are open. And that mm-hmm. was always the intention to actually have the exchange happen both ways. And to work on some of the opacity and the misunderstandings that we have because of you know information doesn't flow that smoothly and i would love to work with the chinese ecosystem too and that maybe eventually even bring the two together like to have a chinese founder who sold an Amer- an american one and or a german one come together and actually discuss and share and learn across cultures their paths and stuff too i think that would be That would be interesting. Um, it's also, we're in a very unique time with COVID. Like I've also noticed that, you know, racially the Chinese have always been allies of the, of the race that's in majority power. And there's a way in which I feel like the Chinese have been safe by being more quiet, more agreeable, you know, the more agreeable har- harmony creating. And I noticed with COVID and the increase in racism, one of the benefits is that more Asian Americans are speaking out than I've ever seen before. Mm. And so I think part of the unique time that we're in is also a questioning of power dynamics. You know, whether it be our relationship with work our relationship with money, our relationship with race, um, that we're in a unique time to recreate the story or to be free of all stories. But I feel like in every person they, they ha- there's a path and sometimes sometimes skipping to wisdom I notice it's deeper in the path can confuse one a person so for so for example at some point in the journey for with emotions there's a learning that emotions are aren't real in the sense that they're manifested from thought and from ego but if you tell that to someone who hasn't actually felt and embraced and fall in love with all their emotions it can be another tool that's actually more of a shadow than a, than a freeing because now there's there's a way in which one can create guilt or shame or judgment towards oneself for having emotions and it's a very interesting uh, could you passage. could you parse that last
1: um that last thought a little bit with a little bit more clarity for for me
2: yeah. So so it goes back to my own path. And I was like, wow, I'm so lucky to have learned it in the order that I have, which is it was all about the heart. And then it was about the silence and the lack of identity. And I noticed that if I had gone to China first and I had heard phrases like emotions are real or or like they're created or like, emotions are are connected to your fragility of your ego and the fragility of the self like all those words taken out of context could have for someone who hasn't explored emotions could have led to shame and blame and like like uh why am i feeling like so sensitive to this person and why have i gotten suddenly so triggered and, I, and i'm criticizing myself for being triggered with the person and not having enough identity like the spiritual the spiritual path has become co-opted as, as the ego as part of the identity path again. And I noticed that I had to go through the work in the West first um, around fluidity of emotions, like, like not knowing, not having any idea of emotions and then going very deep into rage and grief and joy and pleasure to learn that it was all the same. Like in the when you move through any emotion deeply, you feel all the other ones or in deep, gratitude, there's deep grief, you know, and, and, but I feel like if I got that out of order, it would have, it would have slowed down my path, I would have, it mm-hmm. would have hampered, it would have been harder, actually, for me. And I think the fact that I, I didn't go to many teachers, but it was just the one and then just the one. Um, I got to not have any, I, I received the gift of not having, my my innocence and my ignorance gave me the gift of not having any projections and just going direct into the experiment, into the experience.
4: One Would thing it, I it, notice
2: in the West is sometimes there's a lot of like shopping around, especially with all our platforms that we have. And sometimes that can prevent, it can be enabling for you to find the tool that works Best for you, but it can also be a shadow, and that it can prevent depth. And so,
3: hmm.
2: would it be
1: accurate to say, um, to paraphrase what you were sharing, as um, like in, before emptying, we we need to fill. Like if we start empty and then we try to empty empty, there's yeah. Get a little bit stuck.
2: Well, you can't start empty. It's like trying to empty without acknowledging that you're full. Yes. Okay. And so you have to acknowledge the fullness first. And a lot of the work is in loving what has been shamed and blamed. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes the work and what I'm challenging someone to see is not, it's what they are afraid is true. It's like reaching right behind them and feeling what they're afraid to face in themselves because they're scared it's true. And then having them face it and to see through the shame, blame, and guilt around it. And then when you feel things you need to feel and you can actually question it and say, okay, what is it that I want to empty? But shame prevents us oftentimes from seeing something. And a lot of the work with the leaders I do is around that emotion, like the thing we don't want to feel. And a lot of decisions, like if they have a core decision they need to make an active inquiry we do is you do a two by two. I'm saying this also for the people on the call if they ever want to do this. If you have a, a difficult, if you have a decision that you need to make and it's an important one and you feel there's a lot of feelings coming up, it's important to lay out the options and for each option to say, what is it that you're trying to feel more of? And what is it that you're trying to feel less of? Because every decision we make is actually to feel more of or less of something. But when we don't recognize that, we make decisions that are actually to not feel something, which are actually not very good for us because we're not actually operating in the rational mind or, the, or the, the, the perspective is very narrow. And so when the person can, when you can actually feel, then once you identify and you can feel the things you don't wanna feel, then you say, OK, what is the best choice for me here?
3: Mm.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Um, so we are at the top of the hour. I'm going to turn this over to Nicholas um, to take questions from, from our listeners.
0: Great. Nicholas? Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, Mina. Um, this has been so interesting. So I wanna jump in at one of the questions that came in from a listener and I'm, I'm just gonna add my own spin on this because I related so much to it. So before I, I say the question from the listener, I've noticed that as I add um, sort of opening practices in my life and calming practices and connecting practices, I've been meditating for 25 years. The more I meditate, the more I'm able to cram my life with more stuff and handle more pressure and, you know, ratchet up my achievement mentality. And the question that came in, which is sort of parallel for me is um, let me read it. There are tales of sharpshooters using John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness tool to kill more precisely. And of Wall Streeters using Eastern meditation and transformation tools to kill more in terms of financial gain. So how do you mean to think about business the business world's use of tools of transformation um as what ends up being tools of greater hegemony
2: greater of greater hegemony you said yeah 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 um so there's two pieces one is the intention of the person who offers the tool and the other is the intention of the person who receives the tool and so both sides, I think, have an importance of responsibility to take. But I think all you can really control is the person as yourself, as your as your own being, the person who receives the tool. And yeah, it's a tricky. I think there's a way in which simple tools are very helpful, like just a simple tool of becoming more aware of your body, becoming more aware of your thoughts. But I think what can be dangerous I notice is if the business world gives tools without additional support. And what I mean by that is sometimes if, we give them, if you give a person a lot of silence or a lot of tools to go deep and a lot of trauma comes up, but you don't have the supporting tools to process that trauma, um, it can be a painful experience. But then also how do you ever know because what if they go on and then find their own trauma therapist or their support for people? So it's also impossible to say this is good and that is bad. Um, but I think it is ultimately a good thing that the conversation is even happening in the business world, that these tools are even being considered. And I do think the bigger conversation we need to have is how we functionalize ourselves and how do we stop treating ourselves as tools and functions. And how do we trust ourselves that when we are in our fullness and our life force is full, we are naturally creative and amazing and beautiful beings.
0: And, and do you think so that functionalization, if I can call it that, of, of using these tools and maybe seeing ourselves differently will also influence us to use the tools maybe for different purpose? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you seen that? Do you have examples of that?
2: Um, in terms of people using these tools and companies to find their deeper purpose?
0: Yeah. I you
2: mean. Um, yes, I have seen it. There's a China company that... We were at a table um, together with my Zen teacher and she said... Our staff treats our clients horribly. And I remember my teacher looked at her and she said, where do you think they learned that from? Got up and walked away. <laughs> and this <laughs> businesswoman woman found her and she's like, hmm, okay. <laughs> so the transformation really started from within. She started to create a really strong team culture. She started creating... Um, community circles, we started creating teams, more like communities, so they could start to collaborate with each other. And what I saw was the unlocking of each individual's desire for connection, actually be owned and be brought to the surface. And oftentimes i notice noticed in the business world, our, even in just the normal world, our, our pain of thinking that we can't have what we want makes us suppress our want. So then we walk around becoming increasingly numb. And so I think a core, a core part of the practice is, you know, first we just own our wants and our deepest desires. So much of the trauma and the, and the conflict in modern society is people trying to manipulate and focus on the other person's want rather than owning their want because they're afraid they can't have it and that fear of feeling rejection. And then at some point in the path, you realize that the, the experience of wanting is enjoyable and you are wanting all the time. And if you just be with the experience of wanting without needing it to be fulfilled, there's also deep joy and pleasure and enjoyment in that. And so it comes back up to how do we just even allow ourselves to feel it and to have access to it.
0: It's so interesting. Is there is there also part of this that's momentum? Like you'll see people who you know, as, as you talked about in your family, they had to gain or regain economic security for themselves and their families. They're people who have been on the path of gaining economic security for themselves and their families and have gone way beyond, you know, multi-generational wealth. And yet they're still running as fast as they can to do the same thing, to play the same game and mm-hmm. just get more. Um, and mm-hmm. not even stopping to notice that maybe it's not as satisfying as it was because it's just the game they're in. Yeah, Is there, are you are you talking about a sort of mindset shift for people who do some of the work you're you're helping them do?
2: Yes, that's very common amongst uh, the people that I work with. It's this recognition that, when they're at what they thought they wanted and it's absolutely more than multi generationally complete taken care of, that they end up having to face the emptiness inside. And the way they yeah better, more, better, more and underneath that a fundamental feeling of never being good enough. And it doesn't change when you have a hundred million or a billion. It's it's all it's all this chasing and running and until you come back and face yourself, do you learn to rest in the goodness of your soul? And then, they, and then there's actually true peace. And then whether or not what you have just becomes less relevant. And one of the core ways to start doing that work is just with the relationships closest, just because that's one of the easiest paths to opening that heart, to feeling more connected, to, to addressing some of the emptiness. And oftentimes people have difficulty at that phase, like loving themselves for being useless, loving themselves for doing nothing, loving themselves for achieving nothing. And a lot of the self-loathing at that point becomes, you have to face it, you know, you begin to question it.
0: Yeah, it's funny. I'm, I'm reacting to you even as you're speaking and I'm thinking, you know, I am what I've done. Um, so I can I can imagine that really resonates with people. Um, I've got a, a question from uh, a listener who, and this may play into what you were just saying about starting with the people who are close, closest to you, who's, this listener is really interested more in your family dynamics um, and said, it's often said that immigrants at their best can attain the best of East and West. And do you feel as if you've received that and what do you see as the best of each?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. <laughs> Before I answered that, just to your last comment, I remember I was at a retreat and and my teacher had said, it's not love if you have to do something for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I run that achiever pattern me and a lot. Um, okay, so the, the there's, so being in between the East and the West, it's been very interesting. the best of both. I, I wouldn't say there's a best, but I can tell you the, the gift that I've gained from from both. I feel like the gift that I've gained from being in the West is really mushy, vulnerable conversation, really intense, standing the fire in conflict with someone, like that challenger type and, and having my feeling my helpless rage to the extreme and seeing that it's just love and I and it's a demand for support and help and not wanting to be alone. Like the intensity of emotion, the intensity of connection, the intensity of vulnerability is one of the greatest gifts that I have learned from the West. And I would say ind- the indigenous practices that I've learned, I'd say it's global, it's not West or East. And then I say the greatest gift I learned from the East is that in doing nothing. I am everything, and it's a it's an and it sounds so cheesy to say it because you know all spiritual practices say it, but it's really so felt. and what I what I really did one of the greatest gifts I received from the East was the gift of simplicity and and recognizing that the extraordinary is in the ordinary. Like the West is all about achieving ambition, everything's out there. And in the East, I really learned that. You can have an orgasmic experience, experience smelling a flower, or drinking water from a fresh spring. You can taste the liveness in it, or in food, you can feel the love in it. It was like such a sensitive, sensitive tr- sensitivity training around the most ordinary aspects of life, and to enjoy that. And I noticed there isn't that as much of that here in the West, where it's like fall in love with, fall in love with your breath you know and it's, it's a rom, it's a very it's a very tan is a very romantic love affair it's like have being in a romance with life where you're where life is romancing you and you're being romanced with by life and then of course in the path ultimately it does go to just obliteration but but the path towards that is can be very romantic uh,
0: yeah well and, and obliteration can be romantic too i mean we're we tend to forget yes. that for for most of history right and and most of what um comes after we were not in this form like our w- whatever is forming this dust yeah. this cloud of energy yeah has been the flower that you were smelling or nature or, you know your yeah. your we tend to sort of think everything is this now more i need want um i've got a question sorry just one um, Oh go ahead. Please. One
2: more thing I'm gonna say is that like being a Chinese immigrant or Chinese woman, there's also a weird dynamic we're in that really women were owned by men for a very long time, like even up until mm-hmm. my grandmother's generation. And my great grandmother had bound feet where they cut the bottom of her feet and bound it to be small. And so we're also I feel like on a human level, this like women around the world awakening to their power. Like even with the passage mm-hmm. of, of voting rights for women in the United States. So so, and one of my teachers has said that like with the awakening of desire and, and power and women, it does create this interesting energetic time we're in, that there's a lot of opportunity for insight, awakening, realization, enlightenment, just because the, the world is trying to balance energy out. Yeah, um, yeah. I know that sounds a little bit cryptic, but it's also like being between the two cultures. It cre- does create tension, but feeling like I have to choose between one or the other you know, or like how I spend my time between one and the other and the choice between it's really a choice. Sometimes I feel between the aesthetic path and the material world. And that—and that's why even this conversation about business and spirituality is my attempt to integrate the two that the aesthetic and the material doesn't need to be so separate or the illusion of it can be seen through.
0: No, it sounds like you're in such a unique position to really understand sort of the disintegration that, you know, causes a lot of suffering in so many of us, um, I really appreciate that. Um, there's a question from Joe um, who says, uh, Mina, you say emotions aren't real, yet you speak about how important it is for someone to explore their emotions. Also, quote, every decision we make is actually to feel more of something or less of something, unquote. The idea that emotions are not real seems in conflict with, um, Sorry, just lost my line. Seems in conflict with the importance of the emotions in the work you do. Can you speak a little bit more about this and clarify?
2: Yeah, I'm like, is that Joe, my teacher, <laughs> asking that question? <laughs> like, I was who I was asking? Um, yeah, it's an important clarification. So. Uh, I believe that the modern psychology definition of emotions is also, it lives directly. If you look at the, the, the um, scientific definition, I remember it's, it has to do with emotions are a response, a, a physical and somatic response to stimuli to the ego. And so there's this question of, okay, so if you don't believe in the ego, then what happens to the emotions? it's not about destroying or getting rid of it. And the, the line emotions are not real is not, um, so everything is true and untrue. The emotions, emotions are real, they exist, they're here, but there's a way in which we don't have to believe in them and the story that comes with them when we're feeling it. It can be an experience. And you can look at how the ego is being stimulated and the emotion that comes as a response and the thoughts that come as a response to that and the way that the two work together. And you can observe that and be with it without believing it to be like, oh yes, I'm in danger, I'm scared, I'm in danger. Or I'm angry, I have a need and I have to have it met. Or um, I feel sad because of this. And so the emotion and the thought at that point, you can see its relationship to the belief of the identity and then actually see it is there and you can enjoy it so it's still real because it's there and you can enjoy it but it's unreal in the sense that it doesn't have to be the story that comes with it doesn't have to be believed to be true and also when i've in my experience when i just experience an emotion that's happening a movement in the body without it always attaching story or questioning the story with it then it, it's it's like wind it moves you know it doesn't stick it's like, oh, okay, that's happening, that's happening. And oftentimes it comes back to, you know, oh, that moved because that emotion or that thought moved because I have a thought that I am a spiritual practitioner. And now I am judging this other spiritual practitioner because I have identified myself as one. And, you know, and the thought actually comes back to not believing the identity that I've taken on that has stimulated that thought, emotion, or rejection of another in the first place. I hope that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. I'm going to go on with questions because there, there are several. Um, I've got a question from Eddie. Um, how can we individually, might be Edie, but I think it's Eddie. How can we individually, collectively, and universally occupy, in quotes, our humanity for the sake of all sentient beings? And how do we humanize business for the common good at this time in our evolution?
2: What was the first part of that? The first part of um,
0: that? Yeah, the first part was how can we individually, collectively and universally occupy our humanity for the sake of all sentient beings? And that seemed to dovetail with humanizing business for the common good.
2: Um, so the immediate thing is it starts with you. I know that can sound cheesy, but it's true, I feel. Um, starts with you what is it what does it mean to embrace your humanity in this moment and then collectively i think as more leaders awaken to this work and come into community with each other they normalize it so i see in china my community we have um, groups of founders that come together to do the work and what they do is they normalize it in their industry by doing that, by feeling that they're not alone. And then thirdly, I feel is to tell stories. The more stories we tell and celebrate this, in the public, we can begin to the more that we change what the definition of success is or, you know, away from money. Um, I would take that back. It's so not necessarily away from anything, but it's just asking oneself, what do you want to, Serve like what do you want to orient yourself to? And I think when leaders come together and stories come together to to awaken that question in each person's heart, that is valuable.
0: I love what you what you said about starting with yourself. um And I'll just I'll throw in a little anecdote. I was running a company and um, I said to one of my advisors, I think I want to go off to divinity school and be a minister. And he, he was a sort of powerful human being in my mind. And he looked at me and said, you know, you can be a minister right here running your company. Um, and that re- really resonates what you said, start, start with yourself to change the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got a question from Cynthia, um, who, you know, she's a Chinese American woman and she appreciates your work very much. And her question is, a lot of people's perception of Chinese culture is the modern China that has gone through a lot of Westernization. This process by itself is associated with a deep collective trauma. In adopting Western standards of science, we the Chinese have negated our own metaphysical understanding and way of being such as Chinese medicine. Have you encountered that collective grief and trauma in your work?
2: Yeah. I feel like China is beginning to process that. It's a lot to process. It's a lot to process. Um, I also see the government making moves to process that. There was a very good article recently um, on Wang Huning who is part of the top echelons of politics who came to the US. And it speaks of even the government recognizing that just adopting capitalism empty of cultural values or principles is not sustainable, at least to in more inequality, more um, breakage in society and the breakdown of community. And so there is a revival right now that's happening in China, intentional revival of, of culture and principles and beliefs. And There's also different ways that generations in China heal. Like I've seen certain older generations heal that trauma through spiritual channels in the sense religious channels, sorry, in the sense of going to temple or going to embracing Buddhism. And I have seen, you know, psychology from the West being brought to China now and a lot of the younger people embracing therapists, coaches, people who aren't trying to be better than them, but be with them in the journey, who aren't telling them, you need to do this, but asking them what they want. But I definitely see that amongst the youth, like wanting that kind of approach in their in their transformation. And the leaders that came from China are all evidence that this is a growing movement. And it really was it's a really nascent movement still, like if we look at it in terms of like, 10, 10 years, 23, like in terms of decades, it's still a very nascent movement, but it's blossoming.
0: Nice, thank you. Um, I've got a question from Michael. How can your work or can your work either way be translated so that it is directed towards communities where in yeah. some sense the community is the focus where normally the focus would have been the organization?
2: Absolutely. Um, so it's the same thing because an organization is ultimately many communities. And the only difference is power dynamics and hierarchies are more um, evident or directive in organizations. But absolutely and i do work with communities and even what i see there's one participant who came Zhou Zhao. her entire organization in china is to train communities to support each other and so instead of training therapists or coaches she she says come with community members we train you to support them out and continue to do this work in your communities and so um, her name is Jiao, Jojiao, J O J I A O, and I'm happy to connect anybody with resources um, with people in China that the stories and people I'm talking about. If if you want to learn more, but she takes a, her her approach even is specifically targeted training
0: communities. Thank you. Um, I've got a question from Preeta. Actually, um, when did you first learn to appreciate beauty and the romance of life? Was that through um, your teacher and spiritual training or were there seeds of that in your early life?
2: So I thought it was that. And then I had a very good friend come visit two weeks ago and he said, you've always like made a million sounds when you eat because you're enjoying food so much. He's like, I've always seen you just be crazy about the sensual experience of life. Um, but I did have one very powerful moment with, um, my tan teacher, the first time I went to China, I went to live with her for two months. And she was like, do you want to learn how to talk to these flowers? I was like, yes, I want to learn. And she's like, okay, come here. And we both go there and we're crouched on the floor and we're looking at these tulips. And she says, okay, close your eyes, go inside. She says, don't try to do anything. Don't try to understand or reach towards this tulip." Instead, let yourself be seen. And I remember I was sitting there, and opened my eyes and I looked at this tulip and I just let myself be seen. And it was a very powerful experience of letting myself be seen, feeling the beauty of the tulip and that I was beautiful. I was so beautiful and beautiful. And then like just feeling like big love that was coursing through the tulip and beauty and me, which was me. And it was all instantaneous. And it felt like this, like falling. And that was a very powerful moment for me in beauty. Oh, that's
0: beautiful. Thank you. I've got a couple more questions. Um, this question from Raju. Um, how does the West humble itself to learn the successful Eastern way of work that leads to loving life itself, in quotes. And what does the East need to humble itself to?
2: The first thing that comes up is in the West, it's a letting oneself feel, I need you. Like we need each other, I need you. And to even turn towards the relationships in your life and to let yourself feel without resistance the need. And there's a difference between I need you and I'm gonna go out of myself to get something from you to fill myself, the codependence need versus a feeling of surrendering to one's innate and factual dependence on, like you can't mm. take a bite of food without fifty people having worked to brought that bring that ingredient to your table, you know. And it's a it's an opening experience into and it goes deeper into oneself that need rather than out into the other. And I would say for the East, um, let's enjoy ourselves, we can have fun. I think that's, that's one like to really enjoy and embrace, like enjoyment, because there's just so much hard work and competition and intensity. Um, yeah.
0: Nice. Well, let me, um, let me close with a final question. Um, how can we in the Awaken Calls community and the broader service-based ecosystem support your vision and the and your work in the world?
2: I feel like the deepest thing I'm standing for is love. And I feel like that's the gift I've always received from all of my teachers. What they're really doing is they love, like loving me so much that I learn what love is by experiencing, so it's continuously asking oneself like what like being in tune with one's own one's own heart in the community and doing that work and i'd say for me to support me on a on a on a level above that is if you just people who want to do this work leaders who want to do this work and who are open and willing and asking themselves questions and want to involve their ecosystem and are curious about doing the work internally and then into their organizations i would love to meet those leaders where they're at and to do that rippling work and to and to be in the curiosity of how we ferociously like love love in the complexity of relationship and increasingly complex relationships as as organizations grow you know how do you sustain that Frequency.
0: Thank you. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna take away from this, I think, and I'll just say this before turning it over to Cynthia that the the image I had a lot of the time when you talked is just to turn the mirror to me, you know, as I as I walk through the world and have all these thoughts about everything and everyone and judgments and really start start in here um, if I want to make change so thank you for that from from me and Cynthia please um take us take us to close
1: well I thought I would um, read a couple of stanzas from one of your poems Mina uh, just to give a glimpse uh, to us of of um, how you experience the extraordinary and the ordinary, um, and it's it's playful, it's luscious, it's uh, it's it's all of it. It's it's really you kind of merging with this oneness of this little lychee fruit. Um, but and then after that, I'm just going to read two two stanzas, and then I'd love to um, invite you to play your wooden flute again, and just take us back into the silence, and we'll just close up the call that way. Um, and this time really just honoring um, all that was um, shared in this call, honoring um, all the invisible volunteers that made this call happen, and just the, the forces that brought us all here together today. So this, um, this poem is called We Were Made to Be Lovers. And this is all on her website, uh, minajlee.com This lychee this lychee makes me want to cry. Such lushness, such fertility. Juice bursting at the seams. What a perfumed fragrance and taste. Sweet, yet something more. Flowers and peaches. The flesh with enough nutrients to grow the next tree. That is what I eat. The nutrients to grow an entire tree in that bite liquid dripping down my lips making love with life
2: it's so nice to be read <laughs> thank you <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for listening to a recording of Awaken Calls. To access archives, visit us at www.awaken.org. And to get more involved, volunteer at www.servicespace.org.